0: Welcome to my weekly Parsha share. This week we're going to be talking about uh, the Parsha. Uh, We're going to be talking about a specific incident in the Parsha, but actually we're not really talking about the incident. We're talking about the generalities, the lessons that can be learnt from that and other aspects of what was going on in the family of Yaakov, Avino, of Jacob, the patriarch, the forefather, to try and understand how that can impact us. In other words, not looking at it as a history story, as a tale um, from the dawn of Jewish history, but as something which is meaningful to us that can have some practical application. Now, a lot of you who uh, are regulars, listening to my share, watching my share, and of course, I welcome all of you who are watching, maybe for the first time, perhaps you want to subscribe to my YouTube channel or to my SoundCloud channel and that's of course very easy you just have to click on the icon at the bottom of the screen or on the SoundCloud you just have to press subscribe and uh, you'll be regularly notified of my shiurim when they are broadcast and when they are uploaded. So the point is that I have a lot of feedback from those who come onto the shiur and listen and watch the shiur and one of the uh, messages that I'm getting, the feedback I'm getting, is that everybody loves the nasiba Sholem. Now, those of you who have been watching or listening to my Shi'urim for years will know that I too love the nasiba Sholem, and I've regularly quoted him in my Shi'urim over the years. And uh, if you go to my backlog of Shi'urim, you can find them all on my website, uh, you will discover that many of the pieces of nasiba Sholem have appeared, I've discussed, I've described, I've explained, and uh, you can look at those and hopefully gain um, some knowledge about the Parsha through the eyes of the Nesivas Shalom in that way. But this week I'm also going to be, at the request of so many, I'm going to be looking at a Nesivas Shalom on this week's Parsha and Parshas Vayeshev. And it's an extraordinary piece. It's extraordinary because it offers three answers ...to a question that may have puzzled you in the past, and which I've discussed in the past, but uh, which always requires further attention. And I've decided to call this week's share, From the Depths, Salvation. It's taken from Tehillim, Mi Ma'amakim Krasicha Hashem, and it's uh, when we are in the depths of despair, that's when God will come and redeem us, and that's when salvation is at hand... That's the theme of today's shir, but we're going to look at it through the perspective of the story of Yehuda and Tamar, and something else which is alluded to in the medrash, and which I think is extremely important, but doesn't get a lot of attention in the commentaries. And therefore, I'm going to speak about it a little bit now. We'll come to Yehuda and Tamar in a minute. The first thing I want to talk about is the shvatim, the children of Yaakov Avinu. These incredible uh, role models for the Jewish nation, each and every one of them is considered to be a person of incredible moral stature, and yet they seem to have made a grave error of judgment when it came to Yosef, their brother, first planning, plotting to kill him, and later on selling him into slavery, and he went down to Egypt and as we know, it was many, many years before that mistake came right. What were they thinking in that interim period? So we know we're going to talk about Yaakov Avinu today. What were the Shiftei Kah thinking? What were the children of Yaakov Avinu, the brothers of Yosef, thinking during the period of time after they'd sold him into slavery and before they rediscovered him in Egypt when he revealed himself? What were their thoughts? What were they thinking? How did they feel? I know it sounds very Californian. How do people feel? But feeling is important. How are they feeling? What was going through their mind? What was going through their heart? How did they relate to the act of having sold their own brother into slavery? It's very important to understand it. And I think you're going to see the Medrash says they weren't happy with what they did. Even though they justified it, And you're going to see that they had the ultimate form of justification. Nevertheless, they were not comfortable with what had happened. Somehow they were very much down in the dumps, very disillusioned with themselves, with their lives, with the potential for the future, with every every aspect of what was going on in their lives was was colored, was affected by what they had done with Yosef. And that was something which weighed heavily on them. What about Yehuda? What's the story of Yehuda and Tamar? So, you know, when you are reading a narrative, and perhaps I'm going to write about this a little bit later this week, but when you're reading a narrative and suddenly the narrative takes a diversion, it digresses from the main storyline and goes off in a completely different direction and then comes back to the storyline. The expectation is that somehow that diversion, that digression, has to do with the story. But we have the story of Yehuda and Tomar. Yehuda gets married, has children, has a daughter-in-law and marries two of Yehuda's sons. They both die. He doesn't obviously want to give his third son to her. He thinks she is a katlonis, somebody who, who's association with a man will cause that man to die and he doesn't do what he has to do which is marry her because that was the law of the time the law was that you have to get married to somebody who you've taken into your family to lever at marriage so what was he going to do Was he going to just leave her? Was he not going to leave her? That's the story, that's the tension of the story. The point is, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the story of Yosef. It doesn't have anything whatsoever to do with Joseph being a slave in Egypt or the fact that his brothers, including Yehuda, had sold him. And you're waiting for the punchline. You're reading through the story and you're waiting for the punchline. You're waiting to see whether or not this is some connection to the story that we've read about at the beginning of Ayeshev and the story as it continues at the end of Ayeshev, but it doesn't. That connection is never made. And that's a question that didn't just occur to me. It's a question which occurred to Chazal. It's a question which was uh, um, relevant as much to them as it is to us. What is the story of Yehuda and Tamar doing in the middle of Parashas Yeshev? Why do we need to know about the fact that Yehuda got married to Tamar and had children, etc.? What relevance is it to us? And that's essentially what we're going to be talking about today, and also about the Shvatim and Yaakov Avinu and Yosef HaTzadik, all of whom were pretty much in very depressing circumstances. So the Medrash, quoted at the beginning... Of Nesivah Shalom says as follows: Ala So the pasuk tells us that Yehuda went away from his brothers. He took separation time, time out from his brothers, and off he went. And the question is, what relevance this has to our parsha and to the storyline in general? Reb Shmuel Bar Nachman Pasach. Reb Shmuel Bar Nachman was a very famous agadic. Um, Tanna He did a lot of Agoda. He's quoted uh, a lot in the Medrash and in the Yerushalmi, not so much in the Bavli. He wasn't somebody who came up with Halachic um, pieces or Halachic uh, psakim. He was much more involved in Agoda. And in fact he was consulted. He was a very close friend of uh, the the head of the Sanhedrin at that time. And he lived in the, I believe, the third and fourth century. He was one of the later Tanoim. Before the time of the Gemara, he went to Bovel. He came back from Bavel. I think he also was involved in seeking um, a pardon for, in some terrible situation, legal situation that had arisen, he went to the Queen. This was in, in uh, I don't know what the name of the country was at that time, but in, in the area that we call today Syria. He went to visit the queen. He was an extremely respected rabbi and somebody who was widely consulted on matters of agada to do with the Parsha, with all the Parshas in the Torah. And he comments on this piece, on this narrative portion in Parsha Sveyeshev. What does he say? And he began with a pasuk. A pasuk is from Yirmiya. He says this is the relevant pasuk when it comes to the Parsha of Yehuda and Tamar. What is the posup from Jeremiah? Jeremiah 29,." God says and this is in the um, words of Jeremiah. God says, "I know Mach. I know the deepest and innermost thoughts, but there's a um, kind of backdrop to this, that I know more than you know." But you think you know on a superficial level, you see the facts in front of you, and you feel that you have some understanding of what's going on, but ultimately you don't know. Why? Says Yirmiyah, and he's repeating the words of Hashem, he's a prophet, he says, because, ki I am the one who knows machshavis. Says rab Shmuel Bar Nachman explaining why this pasuk is relevant to the story of Yehuda and Tomar. Shvatim Hayu asukim Yosef. The Shvatim, the children of Yaakov Vinu, were involved in the sale of Yosef. That means that they were reflecting on the fact that they had been involved in the sale of their brother. Ve'yosef asuk and Yosef was involved in his um, uh, mourning rites. Sak is sackcloth, Tanisa is fasting. Clearly, he was very concerned about his situation. Reuven, Reuben, he was the oldest son. He wasn't involved in the sale because he had uh, gone away from the crowd and was doing his own thing for that particular moment in time. He had intended to rescue Yosef but wasn't able to do so. Reuven, he too was in a very depressed state of mind. The Yaakov, what about Jacob? He too was depressed, mourning over his son. He seemed unable to be reconciled with the fact that his son had disappeared. He thought killed. The Yehuda, what about Judah? What was going on with his life at that particular moment? Says, do you know what Yehuda was doing? He was getting married. And HaKadosh Baruch what was he doing at that time? How was he responding to this uh, very difficult situation? Oh, it's fine. He was doing something else completely. He was involved in initiating the Messianic family. The family of Mashiach, which was generated by the marriage of Yehuda to Tomar, was something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was involved in at that moment. That's what he wanted to do, to create the light of The king messiah. Because Peretz was born and he was the beginning of the line that ultimately led to David HaMelech. And we know that Moshiach is descended from David. So how are we to understand this Medrash? So that's really what the Nesivos Shalom is going to address, but by addressing it, he's going to be talking about some wider issues relating to the story of Yehuda and Tamar and the reaction of the Shavatim to the fact that they had sold their brother and other aspects of the story, and therefore we're going to understand how the story of Yehuda and Tamar fits into this narrative portion of the Torah, and why it's not a digression and not a diversion. It very much folds into the uh, uh, pertinent, the relevant points of the story that we're reading. We need to understand what the Medrash is talking about. Let's understand what was going on at that moment in time. Klal Yisrael, or let's say the nascent Jewish nation, let's call them. They weren't yet a nation. But this family, the family of Yaakov Avinu, were going through uh, one of the most difficult periods of their time until then. Ubeis Yisrael, shavu leshivrei shvarim. And they were completely broken. The house of Israel was totally broken. Achah Aliyah And what was so incomprehensible to them was that this had happened at the moment of their greatest triumph so far. What was their triumph? Kemamah Chazal. Let's look at what Chazal says. it's quoted by Rashi, and here the Nesivah Sholem uh, quotes it in full. What was Yaakov intending to do? He had come from Lovon, married four wives, had all his children, and he had been through the wars when it came to Lovon unfortunately, through very difficult circumstances. He'd been through grave difficulty that had led him um, to, uh, to go to Padnarom, to go to Khoran and that was because his brother wanted to kill him. He'd managed to um, vanquish Lovan. he'd managed to appease Esau, and now he was at the height, as it were, of his powers, and the story, as it were, should go on from here in a very positive way. But everything, just, you know, my father had a little sign on his desk. I remember when I was growing up in his office. It said, just as I was about to make ends meet, somebody moved the ends. That's what happened. Yaakov Avinu was just about to make all the ends meet. Everything was going swimmingly well. And now it all went horribly wrong. Hainu Yaakov Sovaki Yaakov thought that this was... This was the moment when everything was going to come together. Why? He managed to vanquish both the negative force of Lovon and the negative force of Esau. And here he was. He was the victor. He was the person who would managed to achieve that objective. By the way, Avraham had not managed to achieve that. And nor had Yitzchak. Yaakov Avinu had managed to achieve it. Now he was at the zenith of his life, or so he thought. And he thought that he'd be able to be to live in peace and tranquility. He says, um, the Medrash says, that we know that at this moment that Yaakov Avinu is a fire, Joseph is a spark, and Asov is like straw, And the straw is about to burn. doesn't matter how overwhelming it appears. The spark, the flame, the fire of Yaakov and Yosef is going to destroy Esau. But it's not what happened. That's not what happened. What happened? Everything went horribly wrong. He thought that everything's going so well, everything's done. We now we we've reached the plateau, and we can coast. Ubikish and he wanted to live in tranquility. But But at that moment, says the Medrash, everything turned over. As we say in Yiddish, it became an Ibukerenish. Everything was completely overturned. Uva kazul shofel and there was such a terrible, there was such darkness that enveloped them. They were overwhelmed by bad events to the extent that their hope for the future turned into hopelessness and was completely destroyed. In Parshas Mechiras Yoisei first with the sale of Joseph to Egypt, His sale is considered... As, a, as damaging to the midda of Yosoid. What's the midda of Yosoid? So those of you who have dabbled a little bit in Kabbalah will know that Yosoid is the fundamental, pivotal um, element, the midda in the Eitz Chaim of the Kabbalistic tree. Because it acts um, it, as the connection between all the sphira which are above and the sphira below. The material world is below, it's represented by Malchus, and all the other spheres are above, and the one that connects the two is Yoseid, which would be translated as platform or fundament. And that is the most important aspect of our existence, the connector, as it were, between heaven and earth. And <coughs> when Yosef HaTzadik was sold, unfortunately, the Midas Yosoid was damaged and when you damage the fundament when you take the ground out from someone's feet as it were then everything is damaged you're not damaging one limited isolated aspect of it you're damaging you know the trunk of the tree is the thing that connects the roots to the branches the Yasoid is the trunk of the Eitz Chaim And now that Yosef had been sold, that trunk had been damaged. Terrible thing had happened. And now heaven and earth were not connecting because that Yesoid had been undermined. The entire Jewish family, the Israelite nation as it were, at that point, still very, very new, not yet complete, but they were all damaged. They were all suffering as a result of the sale of Yosef. And they were all, and this is the word that is repeated throughout that medrash, they were oisek, they were involved with their sack, with their sackcloth, and with their taanisam, with their fasting. They were all in mourning. They recognized that somehow what they had done had caused a breach between heaven and earth. And so too, when they saw, me, it's bad enough we sold Yosef into slavery. Let's see what the leader of the family is doing. Who's the leader of the family? The emerging leader of the family is Yehuda. He is the king. He's the one with the majesty. What's happening to him? He is going off to get married. He seems distracted. He seems to be going off the reservation. And that's also depressing because he should be leading them back to God. He should be rebuilding the, the family. He should be the one that's repairing the damage that has been caused. But rather than doing that, he seems to be distracted. He's off to get married. Not only was he getting married, what was going on in his life was such that it was considered a, a descent for him, as if he's going downhill. Things were going wrong, the family was falling apart. But Medrash and that's what the Medrash is coming to explain. If everything is going so drastically wrong, the sale of Yosef, Yehuda, descending from his elevated status and becoming, who knows what, why is that exactly at this moment is Moshiach born? Why is it that the concept of the messianic era emerges out of this desperately bad situation? Why? And the medrash answers with this cryptic posuk from Yirmiah by saying that I know what's going on, that God has a deeper level of understanding of what's actually happening, and that's why what you're seeing which on a superficial level looks disastrous Onoichi I, says Hashem, yodati es I know what's going on Let's see how the Nesivas Sholem He's got three different explanations for what's going on here We'll begin with number one And hopefully we'll get through the other two But this Nesivas Sholem is beautiful And if you want to download it, I've had it scanned and it's available on my website or as a comment on YouTube or as a comment on SoundCloud. You can just download this particular piece of Nesivah Sholem and look through it yourself. What, and what is the explanation? Pirish is... We can understand it in a number of different ways. Aleph. hu You know what? They may have had regrets, the Shavotim, for having sold Yosef into slavery, but actually God knew that their intent was pure and it was unsullied by anything negative. This, by the way, is one of the explanations of Chazal and of the commentaries for what happened with the brothers and Yosef, that their intent, their motive, was not coloured by anything personal. They genuinely felt that he was a danger, like an Asov and like a Yishmael. They had Yosef in their family and they needed to get rid of him in order for things to go right. But now that he was sold, they saw that this yoseid was damaged. So they imagined that that was a problem. Of course, it is a problem. But the point of this Medrash is, says the Nasiva Sholem in interpretation, of what it is, Rav Shmur Bar Nachman was saying, this pasuk in Yirmiya is, Anoichi Yodati Es I actually know what was going on, and I know you did nothing wrong. Let's explain it further. Sheha'achim mochru es Yosef kiven Why did they sell him? At that moment, they thought that was God's will. Kamo'y sh'omru chazal shah yochaseh Ruvain wasn't there at the time, there's only nine of them, and they needed a tenth person for the minion, as it were, and they didn't have it. So Therefore they added God as the tenth man to the minion. And then they came together as a group and said, this group of ten, that what has to happen now is Yosef needs to be sold. Ki Yosef hidavar kadosh, They thought that the sale of Joseph is something which is exceedingly holy and sanctified. They knew that whenever you do something which is exceedingly holy, you need at least 10 people. Like when we say Kedusha, we say Borchul, we say Kaddish in Shul, we can only do it if there's a minion. If there's no minion, you can't do that. And therefore they wanted a minion. Well, they didn't have a minion. By the way, I wouldn't recommend this. If you have nine people for a minion and you're looking for a 10th and you say, well, I don't have number 10. I'm going to be mitzaref kudshaburichu to our minion. I wouldn't recommend it. If you're one of the shifte if you're one of the children of Yaakov Ovinu, maybe you can get away with it. But we who are not at that level can't get away with including... God in our minion. But that's what they did. That's what he's saying. It's, it's based on a chazal. They inserted into this act of selling Joseph into slavery every aspect of kedusha that is required and expected of the Shiftei ka. They knew what they were doing and it was a Dovah dusha. And that's what Yerim is saying, I know the Machshoves were pure and holy and that your intent was was absolutely correct. And truthfully, let's think about it. Why was Yosef sold into slavery? He was sold into slavery because that's what God wanted to happen. He was the one who generated this event, as it were. They were almost not in control of themselves. They were just working according to a script God is the puppeteer. God is the one who's pulling all the strings and making it happen. That was the Ratzoin Hashem. As Chazal explained, We know that Yaakov Abinu had to end up in Egypt. He wasn't going to go voluntarily. So what would happen if Yosef wasn't sold into slavery and he wants to be reconciled or reunited sorry, with his son? He'd ha- he would go down to Mitzrayim. It's exactly what happened. But had he not wanted to go because there was no reason for him to leave Eretz Canaan, what would have happened? He would have had to be taken to Mitzrayim in, in um, metal chains. Can you imagine that? They would have had to shackle Yaakov of Vinu and take him to Egypt. Why? Because that was the prophecy that Yaakov needs to go to Egypt. So therefore, in order for him to go without having to go through the indignity of being chained and taken down to Egypt, Yosef went to Egypt And that was God's way of making sure that he went to Egypt. Yaakov Avinu went to Egypt by making sure that Yosef went first. And then Yaakov wants to be reunited with his son. That's what they say. So we can understand that this whole sale of Yosef wasn't something the brothers did, as it were, of their own volition. It was something that was generated by God, scripted by God. It happened because God wanted it to happen. It was the Ritzin Hashem. It's an incredible chazal. They had no choice in this matter. God has forced their hand in the same way as we say the Chazik Hashemet Lev Parai, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart and made him refuse Moses' request, Moshe's request to let the people go. He repeated God's word send out my people, they can serve me. And Farai said, No, I will not send them free. Why could he do that? Because God had taken away his Bechira. Here too, the Medrash says that somehow the Shavatim had had their Bechira, their choice of what they could do, removed from them. Their limbs, their body compelled them to act in a way that made no sense. It was an involuntary act, even if, uh, I guess, consciously they believed it to be voluntary, but they were being forced into a situation where the only choice they had, they had no other choices, was to sell their brother into slavery, and the reason for that was so that Yaakov Avinu shouldn't be taken in chains to Egypt. V'chivan cheher gishu... And seeing as when they did it, they believed that they were carrying out the will of God. Obviously, it must be a Dovah That's why, by the way, they were mitzarif Hashem to the minion. They included God in the quorum because they believed that they were doing His will. They believed at that moment they were doing the highest of the high. The holiest of the holy. That's what they were doing. They were really carrying out God's will. By the, by the way, but that was only when they were doing it. They were almost as if they were hypnotized in a trance doing something, and at that moment believed that they were doing something right. Later on they regretted it, but at that moment. And similarly, Judah in the story with Tomar, where he didn't marry her and he didn't take care of her. This is not the Judah we know, as it were. Judah was a, an elevated individual, somebody who was very spiritual, somebody who was deeply connected to God. How would he get involved in this sordid story of sleeping with a prostitute and giving her his, his items in payment? How did this even happen? says the um, Chazal, say the Nesivah Shalom says, based on this Chazal, we have to understand it only in one way, that Yehuda had no choice in the matter. He was somehow compelled in that situation to behave in a particular way. It was like pare's heart being hardened in as much as that he was doing what he wanted to do only because God wanted him to do it. Not because not in any way because that's what he would have done in ordinary circumstances so um, he he was not uh, um, willing to do it. it wasn't interesting for him it wasn't something that he ever imagined he would do a um, malach came and forced him to do it can you imagine that unbelievable If that's the case, that God was the one who generated this act, we can understand that it was an act that was um, committed, not in sin, but in purity, in the highest level of sanctity. And that's why God is saying, I know what's going on. You don't. Consciously, you have no idea what's happening. You think it's happening one way. You even think you're doing the right thing. And you are, by the way, doing the right thing. But it's because I'm compelling you to do it. HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows what's going on inside our hearts. He knows what we're thinking. Yes, of course, we have this external facade, the words that come out of our mouth, our gestures, our actions, our facial expressions. But inside our heads... What's going on in our heart, the way we truly feel, that's not something we necessarily reveal in every given situation. And actually, it wasn't as it appeared, that the Jewish nation or this nascent group of people that would become the Jewish nation had sunk, as it were, without trace, that they were in a dire situation. They weren't in a dire situation. They may have thought they were in a dire situation, but they'd done exactly. They had followed the script perfectly. They were Oscar winners in this particular movie. They were doing it absolutely perfect, flawless, whatever they may have thought of the matter. I know what's going on. I'm the one who really understands. I can see the full picture, says Hashem. And that's what it is. It wasn't as it appeared on the outside. They reached the highest level of sanctity and sacredness and holiness. If that moment, is, as we've just described it, that is the perfect moment to begin the generation of the messianic family. It's the highest possible moment with no knowledge. There's no, as it were, worldly knowledge of that. It's purely in heaven. Hashem knows it. That is the perfect moment for Mashiach to be born, for the concept of Mashiach to emerge into the material world, a moment of ultimate holiness. Let's look at the next answer of the Nesivas Sholem. There's another way of understanding what this Posuk and the relevance of this posuk from Yirmiyaw that I know the Machshavois, what it means. Madar Oma and what it says in the holy books. Before there is any growth, There has to be something lacking, there has to be an absence of something. In other words, there's something which appears to be very negative, but it leads to the greatest growth of all. And he's going to give an example. Let's take a seed take a seed, whatever it is, doesn't matter if it's a pulse, or if it's a seed from an apple, or a seed from any fruit or vegetable, and you plant it into the ground, what happens to that seed? It's in in pristine condition, beautiful, shiny, just taken out of the fruit, you put it into the ground, what happens to it? It begins to fall apart in the ground, it begins to disintegrate, it begins to rot, actually. That's how it appears in the ground. If you take it out of the ground after a day or two or three or four, you'll see that the seed has begun to rot. And what happens to that seed? It splits and suddenly leaves start to sprout out of it. One second. That's the seed that was rotten. How is it possible? Says the Nesivas Sholom. This is the principle. Koidem called tsmicha chadasha Li Before... There is any new growth, there has to be something which is going downhill, where it appears to be collapsing, disintegrating, a disintegration. And out even of this disintegrating seed, there is an element, an essence of life-giving force, and that's what produces the growth, the leaves, and from the smallest seed, you can grow a mighty tree. You can grow the most beautiful fruit tree or any vegetable, whatever it is that you want to grow, even though this seed at that moment appears to be useless and disgusting and won't produce anything. What happens if it rots completely? But we do know that if a seed rots completely, then it won't be able to produce the leaves. So there is a fine balance here. There's a balance between rotting And then producing or rotting and completely collapsing, disintegrating into nothingness. That is a moment. So there is a moment at which it could go either way. What was going on here with the Shavuotim? Let's understand what was going on here. In order... For this new growth, now we understand why Yehuda and Tamar is in this Parsha. In order for there to be new growth, in order for there to be a messianic era, in order for there to be a redeemer, in order for there to be salvation, the seed has to begin rotting. There has to be a situation of complete collapse, of an absence of any possibility that things could turn out okay. And like a phoenix out of the ashes, the messianic era will begin. Out of the depths, I cry out to Hashem, and that's when God will answer me. And that's what happened here. For the Jacob family, this was a moment when they thought it was triumphant and suddenly. Things went horribly wrong. It was as if the family had jumped off a cliff. It was a moment where no corner, nowhere that they turned could they find a reason to celebrate their existence or to think that they had a positive future. And everyone was so broken and so depressed. They were so convinced, utterly convinced, that their world had collapsed completely. They didn't understand it, but that's what they think. And it was only out of this horrible, as it were, foundation. This horrible situation. That the Oire, the light of Moshiach is able to emerge. He Shayolahem and it was only because they were in this situation that the life giving essence of Mashiach was able to emerge, that the leaves were able to sprout out of the rotting seed. They were the rotting seed, and Yehuda and Tamar were producing Mashiach. Even as everything was going wrong, you know we have this tradition, this Jewish tradition that Mashiach is born on Tisha B'Av, why is, is Moshiach born on Tisha B'av? What are you talking about? Surely Moshiach should be born on Purim or Simchas Torah or Pesach. Why is he born on Tisha B'av? Out of the ashes of the Beis Hamikdash, the Messianic Redeemer emerges. Out of everything going wrong, that's when we things, see things starting to go right. The seed that's planted into the ground, you're ruining the seed. And a beautiful tree grows out of that seed. That is the point of what's going on here. And that's what it means when it says, I know the machsovois. I know what's really going on. I know what's going on behind the scenes. I can see what's going on behind that curtain. He knew how depressed and down they were. Of course, he generated that situation as we saw in the first answer. But he knew now was the moment. This was the moment for the messianic era to begin because he knew how broken they were that they had sold their brother into slavery and they knew how broken Yehuda was that his sons had died and they knew how broken Yehuda was that he would allow himself to fall into that very compromising situation. And at that particular moment, they may have thought there's no hope for the future. Nothing good can come out of this. But Yehuda... Gave birth to parents who became the foundation figure for the Messianic family. David is descended from him and Moshiach is descended from David. That's what happened. God knew how depressed the brothers were. How they were wallowing in their suffering, in their mourning, in sackcloth, fasting. Because they'd sold their brother Yosef into slavery. the He knew how upset Yehuda was in his given situation. He knew that the entire family had collapsed. They were the lowest ebb. It was the most terrible moment in their history so far. And particularly after that triumphant moment when they'd beaten back both Lovon and Esau. And here they were, having fallen off the edge of a cliff. It was this rotting seed through which the essence of life, that life-giving force could be born. From that emerged, began to grow, began to sprout the light of Moshiach. And we find a very similar situation after the hate of the Egel, the most terrible sin that the Jewish nation committed. They just received the Ten Commandments, 40 days and 40 nights, Moshe Rabbeinu disappears up Har Sinai, they don't know where he is, they're looking for a replacement, and they create the Egel Hazov. It's a disaster at that moment, they're all dancing, they're singing, they think it's a simcha, they think it's a joyous occasion. And Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain and he sees them singing and dancing around and what's he going to do? How is he going to react? How is he going to make sure that this is not going to have the ill effect that it could have, the destruction of Clali's Yisrael? What is he going to do? What does he do? You should know the breaking of the Luchas is considered one of the greatest acts of Moshe Rabbeinu's life. He took the tablets that God had given him. And personally, as it were, however we are to understand that, personally inscribed with the Aseres Adibrois. He gives them to Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu comes down the mountain, sees them dancing around the Egel around the golden calf. What does he do? He takes the luchos and he breaks them. Say, Chazal, this was the greatest moment of Moses' life, the greatest act he ever did. Unbelievable! How are we to understand that? The reason for this is because He saw that they had sinned, the gravest of all sins. Even before they got themselves onto their feet, they had abandoned God and put their faith in a golden calf. It was terrible. What possible corrective action? What measure could be taken? What could be done to undo that which they had done? How could they get out of this situation? The only way that they could truly emerge out of the situation, potentially survive God's deep anger at what they had done is by all being thoroughly sad, depressed, down in the dumps. They needed to be in a situation of How could he do that? He needed to 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 break their hearts. Of all the 600,000 Jews Every single person needed to be affected by what he did. It's not something he could do easily. A good drosher wasn't going to achieve that, because there'd always be people at the back of the crowd who would say, ah, who cares what he's doing? You know the cynics. Who cares what Moshe says? What does he know? And the people at the front of the crowd are going to drift off because people always fall asleep during droshes. What does he need to do? He needs to get their attention fast! One act he needed to do. The only way to do it was when he breaks God's gift to the Jewish nation. That's a shock to the system. Every single one of the 603,550 Jews of the count of Jews, there were many more. Every single one of them's heart was broken. That they had lost this precious item, this personal gift that God had given the Jewish nation and it was only through the breaking of their heart that was the rotting seed in which was contained the essence of life that life giving force that through that they could build once again build themselves up to get back their relationship with Hashem and that's why it was Moshe Rabbeinu's greatest act. He realized, I need to, I need to do an intervention here. I need to get them realize that they're, they're rock bottom. How am I going to do that? Throws the luchas, breaks them, shatters them, and shatters their heart. And as a result of them reaching rock bottom, now they can begin the process of rehabilitation. And that's exactly what happened. We'll begin the third answer. We'll try and get through as much of it as we can i This is a very, very interesting concept. Says in the there is something about unfinished business, a lack of completeness. Knowing that the job isn't completely done. It acts as a you know how a pearl is made. Do you know that there's something called an oyster? There's pearl oysters and they stick a little grain of something whatever it is inside the oyster and the oyster feels discomfort and as a result of feeling that discomfort it layers that grain of sand or whatever it is with mother of pearl and then as a result of that it grows a bit bigger so it, it puts on another another layer and another layer and another layer that's how a pearl is made the beauty of a pearl is the result of unfinished business, of discomfort. The oyster feels discomfort. And the same is true of human beings. When we feel discomfort, then we're going to do something right. When we feel discomfort, then we're on a mission to be comfortable, to get it right. The point of the Kusta de Chiusa is, is this I Hahashlama. Somebody's not satisfied with their situation. Now here we get to this word, osuk, which is repeated time after time in the Medrash. They were involved with, they were deeply involved with something. It wasn't something that was happening to them. They were proactively engaged with their sackcloth and with their fasting when they were mourning. bitui. What does it mean when it says, It's a phrase that means that they're not happy. Because when you're osuk, when you're involved, when you're engaged, it means that you need to do something, correct something. And they think that through this situation that we're addressing, that somehow we're going to emerge better. What does that mean? There are people, when they fall, and they go through a very bad time, they just give up. What's the point of trying? You know, somebody puts on a lot of weight, and they think to themselves, why should I bother going on a diet? I give up. And they continue to eat. Somebody who's in a situation where they've got a very bad habit, they're addicted to cigarettes, and they'd like to stop smoking. I can't, I smoke too many cigarettes, I've tried 15 times, it didn't work, and therefore it's too difficult for me. They end up in a yeush situation. They give up hope. That's it. Very often, that's the case. It doesn't bother them enough. They're not engaged with the, with the subject enough to resolve it. And therefore they give up completely. R-Rahman islam <laughs> And they don't bother trying to improve themselves, rehabilitate themselves, and um, get over the problem that they are in. The Jewish people were different. They were involved. They were engaged. B'nai Israel, we're not talking about the Jewish nation. We're talking about the children of Israel, the real children of Israel. The children, Ruvein, Shimein, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zavunan, etc., etc., all of them were deeply involved in what they had done. And they were upset about it. It bothered them. They felt it needed correction, corrective action. <speaking this old man's speech> Yosef himself wasn't happy that he was a slave. <speaking this old man's speech> Yaakov wasn't happy that Yosef wasn't there. He couldn't accept it. He could not accept it. As the Posthack says, <speaking this old man's speech> he could not be pacified. They were trying to console him, and he wouldn't be consoled. <speaking in Hebrew> what does it mean if you're consoled when something bad happens? It means you've made peace with the situation. Well, it's not what I wanted, but I accept it, and life moves on. Yaakov was not happy. He was osuk besakai u <in> the <Hebrew> Was the same thing as Chazal Telas, Shehu Pasach Bishchuvah. He was the one who started the process of Teshuvah. Why did he start doing Teshuva? Because he recognized that his situation was one that required repentance. He was not. All Teshuvah only starts when you realize you've done something wrong. The Hainu Shaha'esek, the Sakam, the and this involvement with their sackcloth and with their fasting, their mourning, their sadness Do you know what it's about? It's about the fact that they felt that there was unfinished business they'd done, They thought they'd done something right but somehow, instinctively intuitively, they knew that what they'd done was wrong and they needed to correct it Do you know why Moshiach comes? When we think the job isn't done when we're not complacent, when we don't think everything's okay. And that's what the Midrash is about. The Midrash about Yehudah and Tomah, His lack of satisfaction with his situation. The Shavotim, Yosef, Yaakov, everybody was in the same situation. And out of that, the phoenix out of the ashes, the Mashiach comes from the seed that's been planted into the ground that looks like it's beginning to rot and disintegrate. From that sprouts forth the Mashiach. But it only happens when we know that we're not in a perfect situation. And we are currently in gollus. And many people believe, for whatever reason, and in their given situation, that their gollus isn't a gollus. There's Jews who live in beautiful communities across, let's say, the United States who feel don't feel the gollus. They have First Amendment rights. They have the right to practice their religion, the right to freedom of speech, they have schools, they have schools, they have kosher food. There's no real anti-Semitism. Yes, it, somewhere, somewhere there's an anti-Semite, but it doesn't really affect my life. My life goes on. They're no longer in Golis. They don't feel the E They're not feeling it, that there's unfinished business. Moshiach needs to come. The world's not a perfect place. What are you doing? Where's your... Involvement with Sak and with Tanis. Where's your involvement? Not so that your little petty parochial situation is okay, but that the wider world situation, the Jewish world and the world at large, is heading in the right direction. What are you doing in the midst of your rotting seed? Where is your life-giving force that will result in Moshiach coming? And so, two people who think that the state of Israel is the messianic um, era's realisation. No, it isn't. It's a skhalta de ge'ula. It's the beginning of the process, or maybe it's only the beginning of the beginning of the process. There's much more work to do. And that work requires us realising that there's much more work to do and not to be satisfied in our given situation. We must be the ones that generate the messianic era. We must be the ones who understand that the Bias Goel Tzedek, that the coming of the righteous Redeemer, will only happen if we feel a bit of discomfort in the life that we have. Not discomfort because I didn't have the proper potato kugel or Yerushalmi kugel last Shabbos, and this week I'm going to make sure I buy it. That's not the discomfort we're talking about. We're talking about spiritual discomfort. A discomfort knowing that the world is not yet a perfect place and I need to do something about it. That I know that even though I'm doing everything right, that something isn't right. Even though Yosef at Sadiq was sold into slavery with God's permission and as part of God's plan, something here isn't right. And I've got to be the one to make it right. I've got to be the one that generates the Messianic era. We'll leave it here for today.